From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Using the powers of his high office, President Trump solicited the interference of a foreign government. A student at Strasburg High School, east of Denver, reads one of the articles of impeachment. As the Senate trial begins, we get perspective today from future voters. Democrats and Republicans are both going about this the wrong way. It's become more about party victory, winning this next election. Then, a full 10 years after an earthquake rocked Haiti, Colorado aid workers still face roadblocks. And later, there's a Grammy Award given to music teachers. And for a second time, the choir director at a Colorado high school is a finalist. His philosophy? Create an environment where kids can be vulnerable. We create the sound from within ourselves. And as soon as that sound leaves our bodies, it's subject to judgment and criticism. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's day one of the Senate impeachment trial. The House says President Trump abused his power and obstructed justice. Resolved that Donald J. Trump, President of the United States, is impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, and that the following articles of impeachment be exhibited to the United States Senate. We've heard plenty from the adults in the room. Now, something different. Using the powers of his high office, President Trump solicited the interference of a foreign government. In all of this, President Trump abused the powers of the presidency by ignoring and injuring national security. The House of Representatives has engaged in an impeachment inquiry focused on President Trump's corrupt solicitation of the government of Ukraine. President Trump has acted in a manner contrary to his trust as president. You've been hearing sophomore Maddie Kector and seniors Braulio Moreno, Jonah Lang, and Bryant Red. They all attend Strasburg High School, about 45 minutes east of Denver. And my colleague Andrea Dukakis dropped in one day after school. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. And what brought you to Strasburg in particular? Well, for one, the kids have a really engaged U.S. history and government teacher, Cliff Smith. He's worked in Republican politics in the past, and we've interviewed kids from the school before and have been really impressed by their engagement, not just their teachers. Uh Strasburg is a rural community, but it's also on the edge of a major metropolitan area. So the viewpoints and experiences are diverse. And along with the kids you just heard reading, we also had seniors Cody Wilson and Ellie Grow with us, and we all piled into this small conference room attached to the school library. We heard the students there reading from parts of the articles of impeachment. What did you want to find out, Andrea? Well, these kids had actually already read through the articles in class, and they've actually compared this impeachment to the two others in U.S. history, former presidents Andrew Johnson, and of course, more recently, Bill Clinton. We thought having the read aloud would get their thoughts flowing, and then I asked them what came to mind. Here's Cody Wilson. He's 18, and he plans to cast his first vote in a presidential election this November for President Trump. Reading the charges kind of reinforces how strict the process is, and I think that the charges are weaker than any we've seen in an impeachment before. I think that there's a good case to be made that the president shouldn't be doing some or saying some of the things that he did say on that phone call. But I think that to state that it's impeachable sets a dangerous precedent for the future. Even the fact that you're going to look into every phone call a president makes with a foreign dignitary 
it doesn't set a good precedence for the relation between the executive and the legislative branches. The group turned out to be about half for Trump and then half supported the idea of a Democratic president in 2020. I asked if anyone thinks Trump should be removed from office. You'll hear Ellie Groh, 17 first, and then 18-year-old Brian Redd. They are looking for reasons as an excuse to get him out of office because they just don't like him as a president. I kind of tend to disagree with the others a little bit more. It wasn't just the phone call. Like, the phone call, I think, kind of sparked the impeachment inquiry and investigations. But I think that the information that they found and the plans that Trump, the alleged plans that he had made to getting that announcement to be made as far as the Ukrainian leader, Zelensky, saying that he was investigating Joe Biden's son. So I think that that could be a huge detriment to Joe Biden if he is elected the Democratic nominee. That being said, I think that Democrats and Republicans are both going about this the wrong way. It's become more about party victory and what can we do to hurt the other party. Do you see the actions as a danger to national security? I would say obstruction of justice. If Bolton was, if he was subpoenaed, Trump would have used executive privilege, I guess he said, to stop him as well as in other cases withholding documents and telling other White House officials to stand down and to not say anything. So I think that could be a threat to the national security because, you know, if you really don't have anything to hide, you'd be all for it. I think truth is what trust is built off of, and I think we need to really be able to trust our government when they're making our laws, when they're governing our lands. I think that that's really important. It's amazing how well they know the players in this. You talked with the kids about the Democrats' decision early on to move forward with an impeachment inquiry and whether these young people saw the Democrats as having any moral obligation to proceed, that this isn't politics, that they feel that they must do this. Right. I asked the kids whether the Democrats had a responsibility to move forward if they thought the president had done wrong. You'll hear Maddie Kechter, who's 15, then seniors Cody Wilson and Bryant Redd. If a Democrat believes that, like, there is something going on, then I think they should investigate that. Cody? I think just from a good of the country standpoint, if you think that the president truthfully did something wrong and that there is a crime there underlying all of it, then as a Democrat, they had a responsibility when it was in the House to wait for the legal force of their subpoenas to come in, for the subpoenas to go through the courts, and then to force testimony from certain people who had first-hand information of the phone call and Trump's mindset going into that, I think they had a responsibility to wait to do a more in-depth investigation to thoroughly convince both the people and possibly even the other side of the aisle that there was a crime underlying it instead of rushing the process to get it done by now. When you see something as being morally wrong, I think it is your obligation to stand up for that and to, you know, speak out. But then the question becomes, to what extent is that useful? Because we're at a spot right now where it's quite obvious that Trump is going to be acquitted in the Senate. Republicans aren't, you're not going to get a two-thirds majority there to be able to impeach him and kick him out. So this whole thing turns out to being a whole two, three months or more of time that we kind of wasted when we could have been using it to do other stuff. 
So I asked the group, if Congress wasn't spending so much time on the impeachment inquiry, what would you want them to be doing instead? Jonah Lang said lawmakers needed to focus more on foreign relations. He was worried the country had just come to the brink of war with Iran. And he said Congress and the president needed to work together on strategy. Cody Wilson said he wished the government would do more to roll back what he said was federal government overreach. For example, he thinks the EPA has had too much control over environmental regulations. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and CPR's Andrea Dukakis joins us. She spent some time with young people at Strasburg High School just east of Denver, asking them uh, in a government class about the impeachment. Of course, the Senate trial begins today. For, For the kids in the group who lean Democratic, Andrea, did they tell you who they like as a presidential candidate? They said they're going to watch for a while and then decide. But senior Braulio Moreno made a not-so-subtle reference to President Trump when he said he knows what kind of candidate he doesn't like. One that's not as loudmouth as he is. (laughs) Because, you know, the tweets. And then what kind of hit me hard was uh, build a wall. Because since I'm Mexican, I feel like it was unnecessary because we're not bad people. Most of my... um, People are, like, just trying to find jobs. And I understand, like, there has to be control on how many people can come to the U.S. and so how many people cannot. But, like, when you, say, build a wall, it kind of hits us. So I felt like it wasn't necessary to say that. I asked them about their families, how, like Braulio, their backgrounds affect what they believe. A few describe being raised in sort of bipolitical families. Hmm. Here are seniors Ellie Groh and Jonah Lang. My parents were raised in different party households, so when they got married, they just, like, agreed not to talk about politics because they had different ideas. And then raising us, they did not talk about politics at all because they wanted us to have our own views on it, and they didn't want us to think something just because they do. So my house is, it, it's basically been pretty conservative since the time I was born, but I still feel like I've had room to grow and kind of develop my my views on my own, and I'm a Christian, so I find that the Bible mainly has been my source for my political views, too. And Can you give me an example? Um, the Founding Fathers, I'd say, like, revered the Bible, too, and just kind of used that to help shape their government. The Bible also talks about the need for territories and for, it was intended for us to have countries and have our own governments. Bryant Red, who plans to vote for a Democrat, and Cody Wilson, who again supports Trump, also talked about how their families affect their beliefs. Kind of a combination, I think, between like kind of what Ellie said and what Jonah said. My parents were raised in opposing uh, parties and stuff, so my dad was raised Republican, my mom was raised more Democrat. But like since they've gotten married or whatever, they've found really good ways to talk about it, to express their feelings and respect each other. It's kind of brought them more to the middle, I guess, some more moderate. But then, kind of like Jonah said or whatever, like, I'm a Christian. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, A lot of what I've learned there affects my political views as well, you know. So I guess one example might be, like, gay marriage. Like, I believe that God ordained marriage between a man and a woman, but I'm not going to hate those people that are gay because religiously we are all God's children. And he loves us no matter what. So bringing that acceptance there and stuff, but yet also having moral direction, I think that's kind of how it's affected me. 
In my house, I was kind of raised on, I'd say in this respect, two ideas. The first was that personal responsibility. You're more responsible for your life than anyone else is. And I think that has definitely encouraged me to be a more conservative person just because I believe that people are responsible for their own things and that it's not the government's job to give you really anything except for protect your life. And so th that tends to be a more Republican view. And then I was also raised in a very patriotic household, which led to my interest in history. And I'm a great appreciator of the founders, and I think that our Constitution is a great document. And so I think that just the deep rooting and appreciation for our Constitution led me to be a more conservative person. Now, Andrew Yudiokakis, I know that Strasburg High School, the principal there and this teacher, you know, they were very excited to have us come talk to the kids. But do you get the sense that these kids like to talk about politics? In this setting, I think they did. But some said they're afraid to get into political arguments with their friends, kind of a mirror of what they see in Washington politics. And some said they'd rather talk about other things. Um, but Bryant Red and Cody Wilson said, sure, they talk politics. Me and Cody lunch a lot together. So political conversations will come up. And do you feel comfortable often, sharing with Cody? Yeah. If you have different beliefs? I think for the most part, yeah, we I tend to be a little bit more moderate. So we'll agree on some things and kind of disagree on other things or whatever, but, you know, we're still good friends despite that fact because there's a lot more that we have in common than just that, so. And, Ryan, it struck me that these kids don't fit into neat little boxes of what we might think of as liberal or conservative, which is also a big chunk of people in this country as well. Thanks so much, Andrea, for sharing this. Appreciate it. Thank you. CPR's Andrea Dukakis, along with seniors Cody Wilson, Bryant Red, Braulio Moreno, Ellie Grow, and Jonah Lang. Also joining the group, sophomore Maddie Kector. They all attend Strasburg High School, about 45 minutes east of Denver. We ask these young people to read from the articles of impeachment against President Trump and share their views as the trial begins in the U.S. Senate. Okay, when we come back... It's been a decade since that deadly earthquake rocked Haiti. We're going to check in with two Coloradans who work to make Haitians' lives better through health care and education. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This week, Colorado Public Radio is bringing you special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial on CPR News when proceedings are underway. Access to this important, developing story is an essential part of Colorado Public Radio's commitment to keep you informed. During this coverage, we're also making the regular CPR News daily schedule available on HD Radio at 90.1 FM Channel 2 in Denver and online at CPR.org. It's been 10 years since an earthquake leveled the island nation of Haiti. 250,000 people died. One and a half million people lost their homes. You'd hope things would have gotten better in a decade. And yet, thousands of Haitians still live in the shacks that were supposed to serve as temporary shelters. The economy is in desperate shape. The country has also been torn by violent political protests for quite a while. Aid workers trying to help Haiti's most vulnerable, orphans, disabled people, the hungry, sometimes these aid workers risk their lives to do their jobs. You never know who will be the next victim. In a country, no one is safe from violence, but we have a mission, and that mission is of love and commitment 
to face any obstacle for the good cause of our children. That's Erlene Deauville. She manages a network of orphanages and hospitals for a nonprofit called Haiti Children. Joining us today are two Coloradans who've spent the last decade trying to help. Susie Kraybacher of Aspen founded that organization, Haiti Children. And hi, Susie. Hi. And Wynne Wallant heads the Colorado Haiti Project. It supports a school, a health clinic, and agricultural programs in a rural community on the Haitian coast. Wynne, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So we heard just a little bit there from your colleague, Erlene, uh, Susie, who says it's dangerous to do her job. Give us an example of what folks like her face in trying to run the orphanage, for instance. So a, a good example would be last week, Erlene and 23 of our women uh, who work at the orphanage as nannies, mothers to the, the orphans, and some of our nurses had to change shifts. They had been stuck at the orphanage for four weeks because so many burning tire barricades. People had hijacked um, shipping containers and put them in the roads. So Erlene had a brilliant idea. I was so amazed at how ingenious these these women were. They went to each village chief. 14 villages we had to pass to get them through safely. And you couldn't go on the main road because of all of the the roadblocks. So she had each village chief get in the passenger seat and get through each village. And, of course, there were negotiations of giving them a few boxes of our rice or um, some supplies. But, you know, we, we don't pay bribes. and But, you know, everybody knows who we are in those villages because we do have so many feeding programs and uh, have dug water wells and take care of their handicapped children and have, you know, mobile clinics. So we that's where how we've been getting our supplies there. You see, Not you, one person was hurt. And, I, you know, it's just amazing that no one has been killed because Erlene actually watched two men assassinated right in front of our vans during that last run. Oh, my goodness. What a painful thing to witness. You say you don't pay bribes, but you you kind of had to do that, though, with the rice, mm, didn't you? Right. Yeah. And, you know, we work in those villages anyway, so we're giving it to the leader. And the leader, of course, you know, that food and water are power. And, you know, I don't mind doing that. When you're just back from Haiti, I wonder if what you saw jibes with what Erlene and Susie have described. So, yeah, I was there um, at the end of December. There has been sort of a, a temporary pause, uh, a truce of sorts in those activities Susie was describing. Um, for several months, the country was experiencing what they called pay lock. The country is locked, locked down. Huh. And, and, and what, what is locked down? Just to give us a sense of... So, yeah, the, the history, I'll give the short version of it. There was a fund established uh, in 2006 through a Venezuelan oil subsidy. That created a large fund, and, and the savings from um, that oil subsidy were supposed to be used for um, public projects in Haiti. Recovery and <clears throat> sustaining human Health life. Health and roads and, you know, public infrastructure projects. Okay. It sounds very promising, of course. The current president, um, Jovenel Moise, was implicated in a scandal. It seems to be had involvement in uh, misuse of those funds. And so what started as a real grassroots 
peaceful protest. There was a hashtag associated. It was a young, a group of young folks that are not associated with traditional opposition parties protesting for some accountability and some action. That was co-opted by a varied set of actors, opposition groups that in essence funded gang activity to sort of lock down the country as a way to make the president resign. And it turned into uh, this situation. Susie? I can't say that it's always just the Haitian government. Um, I think that some foreign aid, too, is, you know, questioned because, you know, another example is Red Cross raised uh, half a billion in hopes of building a hundred and I think 160,000 homes for uh, the victims of the earthquake, and six homes were built. Only six homes. Wow. With a half a billion dollars, Haiti is notoriously corrupt. There's no doubt about that. Um, I'm very interested in how you navigate that. Like in in the rural village, coastal village where you work, when how do you make sure that the intentions of those who give money to you are implemented on the ground and and maybe paint a picture of what that means. The reality in the rural community that we work, the local government is wonderful. They're very responsive. The Colorado Haiti Project has been working in that community for 31 years now. And that kind of consistency and that kind of relationship building goes a long way. So how has that helped the people then? It started with a school, St. Paul's School, a focus on education. Over 5,000 students have been educated since the founding. Right now, there's 356 students from pre-K up until 10th grade. And those programs, which are all locally led and and locally driven, have led to other community-based engagements. You mentioned agriculture. That's a big focus of ours. Um, A girls' empowerment program that's done in cooperation with local expert organizations in Haiti, support for the local health clinic. Um, And all that happens directly through local community-based organizations It doesn't go through the government, Mm. but we do everything that we can to engage the government so that they are aware of what's happening and they're consulted, and particularly in health, that they're a part of those programs. How much was the earthquake an interruption to all of that? And how resilient has this particular... Name this community for us. Petitru de Nip. So Nip is the region, and Petitru is sort of the small city that's part of Nip that we work in. Petitru, like small hole? That's right. Okay. How bad was the earthquake there, and how resilient has that community been? The earthquake was not uh, as destructive in our area as it was in Port-au-Prince and the surrounding areas. The reason that the earthquake, at least a large part of the reason that the earthquake was so devastating is that Port-au-Prince is absolutely overburdened and strapped for resources. I mean, it's a city that over three million people are living in Port-au-Prince and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not built to sustain even a fraction of that. And so, you know, our strategy, which fits with the big picture strategy for the country, is to invest in the rural parts of the country and to allow people, if they choose to stay in the areas that their families are from, to not be forced to leave the rural parts of the country to go to Port-au-Prince. Over 130,000 people leave the rural parts of the country every year, either to go to Port-au-Prince or to emigrate, often in dangerous ways. That's not because Port-au-Prince is a picnic. It's because there um, is a real lack of investment and opportunity in the rural parts of the country. Susie, bring us on the ground again uh, in the places you work in Haiti. Paint a picture of what the recovery Mm. has been like from the quake and how that's affected your work. Mm. Yeah, when the earthquake hit, we had two orphanages at that time, Uh, one in Port-au-Prince, very close to the epicenter, and uh, we had two schools, one in City Soleil and one in the Tabar area, uh, again, very close to the epicenter, and a hospital 
that we had just closed for repairs and to put in some ramps. If we had not closed that hospital, 250 patients would have been crushed in the hospital because it, the earth literally opened up. And I, when I was driving towards the hospital or where the hospital used to be, uh, the skyline, there was no hospital. Oh. And it was just gone. Uh, and every single block was just destroyed around the orphanage. So the, the orphanage didn't sustain any devastation, but we were looted and we had you know a lot of gangs coming in and stealing our equipment. So by the time I got there five days later, we had 32 children missing. Uh, it, it took two weeks to find those children. I went on CNN and did a, an international plea. We, we didn't rebuild the hospital. So many uh, other organizations were coming in. We did slowly rebuild the orphanage and moved all of the children out to Arcaia, which is an hour north of Port-au-Prince. Did you find all safe. the kids, by the way? We found all but one. All but Every one. Single, all but one. Same with some of our employees. We never found three of our employees. Six of our students uh, never found, but witnesses say that they were crushed in rubble. And, yeah, it, it was like <laughs> having open-heart surgery without anesthesia those mm. days. And so would you say that Haiti Children is back to full strength, Susie, in its mm, work there? Definitely. Okay. We were so fortunate, um, and we know that we were supernaturally blessed by having as many survivors as we did. I don't see the government of Haiti recovering at all. I think that there are pockets of amazing hope and success that, you know, to me, that's where, where Haiti will be healed is, you know, in the young people that are coming up in our programs, we absolutely push uh, diplomacy, civic responsibility oh, every year. We take six of the kids to Washington, D.C. So with me, so that I, when I meet with senators and congressmen about Haiti issues, they're there and they get to ask and answer questions in their own country. They go with me when I meet with the president. They go with me when I meet with our ambassador, the Haitian ambassador. We absolutely hope that the children we're raising will become the future ambassadors, senators, congressmen, and presidents of Haiti. When has there been... Um, a mistelling, though, of the Haiti story, like, I think that there's a lot of pity that you hear when you, when you hear about the plight of Haiti, the plight of Haitians. Is the picture being painted sometimes too one-dimensional? I think so. You know, the common narrative, to the extent that Haitian people are, are being featured, they're usually as folks who need help or as beneficiaries rather than focusing also on the Haitian people that are actually doing the work every day. You know, my context for Haiti um, initially was the earthquake, and I came after the earthquake. And I remember seeing doctors and nurses that had lost their families, had lost their homes, had lost everything that you can imagine, that are coming to work for 18 hours a day, going home to a tent, visiting with who's there, and coming back to work to see this endless line of patients. And unfortunately, those folks are usually left out of the story. And even for stories that are not disaster-related, I mean, you're hard-pressed to find a story that doesn't follow Haiti's name with the phrase, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, that's factual. But when it follows 
the name of the country and 95% of the reporting that you find, it comes to define the country. And that's just not accurate. It's also a place of enormous richness, enormous possibility. It's got this singular history. The slaves that became generals overthrew Napoleon's armies and were then blacklisted by the rest of the world because they were a dangerous example to other enslaved people in the world. I mean, the history of Haiti is of remarkable folks. And, you know, I would just say, I said this to a friend the other day, can you imagine if every time there was a story about the United States, it followed with the phrase, the nation with the highest incarceration rate in the world? Now, that's factual, but it doesn't define us. It doesn't encapsulate our country. Interesting perspective. And just like we have a nuanced set of challenges and strengths, so does Haiti. And he said, well, what would you like the tagline to be? And I said, I don't want there to be a tagline. It's not A or B. It's A and B. It's the poorest country in the world, and it's defined by incredible richness. There's been disturbing violence, and there's also 99.9% of the people you ever meet are the most gracious, welcoming, generous folks around. It's a really challenging place to work. It's also a place that you can have enormous impact if you learn the lessons of history and you invest in local people. And if you learn the lessons of even recent history of, of where aid groups have gone wrong, you've talked about the importance of being so connected to one local community. Susie, I'll give you the last word here. You're headed back. I'm curious how they mark the anniversary of the earthquake in Haiti and uh, what you are most looking forward to in returning. Oh my gosh, I am so looking forward to seeing our staff and children. School's been closed for three months and just last week all of our schools are open. Was that part of that lockdown? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So we've missed three months of school, and the kids, they were sad, and they were scared. So I'm excited to get back and to show them, okay, this is why we're going to do better. This is why we're going to learn more. This is why we are going to become leaders. And, you know, it's sad. People didn't commemorate the earthquake anniversary in a very big way in Haiti because they've moved on. We're sad about it. Um, Hundreds of thousands of people disappeared and were buried in a mass grave. And I have to, every day I go to work down there, I pass um, the memorial. And when the earthquake first hit, it was, you know, covered with flowers and beautiful crosses. And now it's, you know, most of the crosses have fallen and it's covered in rocks and shrubs and people are they've moved on yeah in a way religious it makes me think that like um being able to take that moment of commemoration that that can be a luxury especially Mm -hmm. especially if there have been so many difficulties that have followed i want to thank Mm -hmm. you both for sharing your perspectives on haiti with us i really appreciate it oh thank you so much thank you Susie Kraybacher and Wynne Wallant are two Coloradans doing aid work in Haiti. Ten years ago, the island nation was rocked by a deadly 7.0 earthquake. If you've ridden the New York City subway or the D.C. metro, you've been through station turnstiles. In Denver, if you're dishonest, you can just board without paying. And we've gotten questions about this through Colorado Wonders. Well, CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner explains why things are set up this way and why they are not likely to change. 
It's a sunny weekday morning. Rush hour is winding down, and two uniformed officers step on a train heading to downtown Denver. How's it going, RTD Transit Police? We are checking fare today. You have any fare out for us, please? They walk through the train as passengers pull out their ticket. All right, three-hour pass. That's within compliance, so thank you so much. Most everyone on this train has paid. One woman, though, didn't validate her ticket. So Officer Steve Martignano gives her a written warning. Uh, just in the future, can you please make sure you go ahead and validate those? Scenes like this play out every day across RTD's sprawling rail network. It's how RTD makes sure everyone pays. Because its train stations are a lot like most street-level passenger rail systems in the country. They don't have turnstiles. And we got a number of questions via Colorado Wonders about that. Greg Anderson wanted to know how many freeloaders use light rail. And as it turns out, not that many. Only about 2% haven't paid. That figure is even lower on commuter rail lines, like the A-line to the airport. Because we have a security officer on every commuter rail train. In 2018, nearly 9 million fares were checked across both systems. Fewer than 50,000 people didn't pay. Bonnie Keene wrote to Colorado Wonders to say she thinks RTD's revenue problems might be solved if every rider paid their fares. So is that true? Well, in 2018, RTD estimates it lost about $850,000 in uncollected fares on its rail systems. That's a tiny fraction of the nearly billion dollars in revenue RTD took in that year. RTD says it would cost well over $100 million to add turnstiles and fences across its systems. So they've decided it's just not worth it. Officer Steve Martignano says that's okay. That's a beautiful system of not looking at, at you know, fencing and turnstiles and stuff of that nature. Um, and in order to show that it is working, we just please ask you to, to pay. If you don't, you could get a fine for more than $100. And if you don't pay that, your driver's license could be suspended. An RTD fare starts at just $3. So do a little math, and it's clear why most riders choose to pay before they get on board. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Did you know the Grammys honor a music teacher every year? Well, our next guest is nominated. He's the choir director for Arvada West High School. Chris Maunu is one of 10 finalists for this Grammy. The school's choir program has tripled in Maunu's 13 years, and his students have performed at Carnegie Hall and St. Peter's Basilica. This is one of Arvada West's choirs in the CPR Performance Studio in 2018. Chris will soon find out if he's won the Grammy for music education. And Chris, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks C- for Congratulations. It's, it's an honor just to be nominated, right? Isn't that it what really they say? It really is. That's what they all say. Do you feel that? Of course I do. Okay. Yeah. There were um, 3,300 <gasps> initial nominations. Wow. And um, to be mentioned in the top 10 is really special. Now, this is the second time you've been nominated. A couple of years ago, it came my way. Yes. Okay. So uh, I, I'm rooting for you. I'm not supposed to take positions usually on stories, but I'm just plain rooting well, for thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you, that. You grew up in a small town in South Dakota. 
You say it wasn't the best environment for an aspiring singer and music teacher. So how did you know that that's what you wanted to do? Well, yeah, like you said, uh, small town, uh, you know, I think that's typical in a lot of places, actually, where you have to play sports to be a part of the cool crowd. And so I did participate in choir and band all the way through school, but becoming a music major just really wasn't even on my radar as a possible career direction. When did it show up? Well, I uh, chose something practical. I, I was a business major in, in college. And Very sensible. Thank you to my mother. She was with me on registration day. That was back in the day in the late 90s where you still had to, you know, sign up. Show up. With a, with a pencil or a pen <laughs> um, and not online yet. But anyway, she made me join the Y'all Come and Sing non-auditioned large college choir. And so I was like, okay, I'll at least do that. Keep something of a, of a foot in it. Yeah. Since I've loved to sing, you know, okay, fine. I'll do that. But Did you end up getting the business degree? I didn't. I had spent that fall semester just getting involved in that choir program. And that was the first time in my life I had been around so many people who were just unapologetically enthusiastic about singing and about music. And it was, it was at that point in my life where I finally let myself believe like, okay, this is what I'm really passionate about. And so... I visited the dean of the School of Music right away, second semester, and he allowed me to audition mid-year, and I became a music major and never turned back. Arvada is not a small town, but I wonder if you see your role today as being the encourager you didn't have in South Dakota. Well, that's a big a big part of my teaching philosophy, is especially for young boys. Um, you know, there's that stereotype that even in a larger school, that it's not the coolest thing to do. And so I'm really proud. I, I think I had about 20 guys in the, the choir program when I, when I started, and now we have over 100. How do you think you've done that? Like, is it, is it what you say? Is it that the reputation itself becomes its own draw, kind of becomes its own magnet? Yeah, I think it's both of those things. You know, um, the choir program is really excellent. And uh, I think it's one of the things that Arvada West High School is known for at this point. And so I, I think people view it as a safer endeavor just because it's, there's a lot of kids in it and mm. it's really good. But also I feel like it, I can relate to all types of kids because since I did play sports and all that stuff and in high school, I can talk football with the with the men's choir or Whatever. So you did wind up doing sports I in did. high school. Yeah. yeah, that was just inevitable yep. when you were in South Dakota. Okay. Um, in 2005, you moved to Colorado, and not too long after, you start working at Arvada West High School. And w- what keeps you in place for 13 years? I mean, I have to think that you've seen tons of teacher turnover in that time. Yeah. We did something recently at one of our staff meetings, like, raise your hand if you've been here for five years or 10 years. And um, I think I'm one of the one of the veterans in that that building. Um, so yeah, there is a lot of teacher turnover, but it's the students. They, they bring me back year after year. They, they enter my classroom every day, just so passionate, so willing to learn, uh, so bought into my vision and, and what I see a choir classroom to be like. They're just incredible. And I really think of this honor as, you know, a celebration of my students' hmm. fine work because teachers are nothing without amazing students. The honor we're talking about is to Chris Maunu of Arvada West High School. He's a finalist for a music education Grammy. He is the director of that school's choir program. I think it's time to just hear from the kids again, shall we? Uh, why don't we hear Claude Debussy's Noël des enfants qui n'ont plus de maison, 
Christmas Carol for Homeless Children, uh, performed by your students. what it's like to be one of your students. What, what, what is something you say a lot when you're up at the front of a class or something you ask a lot? Um, I think one of the biggest things is to be emotionally connected to the music. And how, yeah. how do you encourage that? Well, first of all, let me just say, like, when you're watching a choir perform, it's to get beyond that initial entertainment value. We as choral musicians have a chance to, you know, pierce the hearts of audience with you know, wonderful content or a thought or an emotional idea. And the way that happens is an audience picks up on the fact that students are emotionally connected to what they're doing on stage. And so that has to be practiced a lot in the classroom. You've got to connect the kids to the words. To the words, yeah. Um, But let me first just say that singing in and of itself is a really vulnerable activity. You know, we, we create the sound from within ourselves. And as, as soon as that sound leaves our bodies, it's subject to judgment and criticism and, and all those sorts of negative things. So we spend a lot of time just establishing an awareness of that culture of vulnerability. And we talk about it. We, we do activities where students will anonymously write down their greatest fear. And I'll share those fears with the class. And every time we've done things like that, the biggest fear is that they'll be judged or criticized mm. singing and, or doing something in front of their peers. And so we establish that, that culture where it's safe to be vulnerable, be, be emotional. And so- And make a mistake? And make a mistake. I feel like your worst enemy is probably Simon Cowell from uh, um, American Idol. God, I can't even believe I blanked on that. There is this culture where like some of us are told we can sing and some of us are told we should stop. Mm-hmm. No one wants to hear that, you know. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot, Chris. Do you think that well, that's... I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> um, a lot of kids do. And that's really unfortunate because I believe that everybody can sing. Now we all... Now that's interesting. You believe everybody can sing, but not everyone's a good singer. Um, no, but uh, the great thing about a choir is that... You know, you have leaders in there, people who are who are a little bit more talented or, or more confident. And then you have kids that, because of the nature of a choir and you have a lot of voices, that sort of rounds off those uh, rougher edges and it still gives that communal singing experience. Recently, your choir performed a piece based on a poem that one of your students had written after the 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida. Um, I'll have you talk about Hive of Frightened Bees, but let's hear it first. Like a 
How did this piece come together? So it was about two or three days after the Parkland shooting, and there was a threat written on one of the walls of our school bathrooms. The threat was that someone is going to shoot up our school. And so the fact that we were already grieving from hearing of the school shooting in Parkland, and, you know, these are high school kids, so peers of my students that were slain in that massacre, it really shook us to the core. And so because of our, our choir room is, is kind of a safe place to be vulnerable, we didn't sing that day. I brought the kids down and, and we talked. And the kids shared their, their anger and frustration and sadness, trauma, fear, all of those things. And Taylor Huntley, one of my students, stood up and, and shared a poem that she had written in response to this. And it just brought all of us to tears. And so I asked her permission if I could share it with a choir director Facebook group I'm a part of. And she gave me permission and I put it up there and it wound up in the hands of American choral composer Andrea Ramsey. And so we, we talked and we decided that the choir that Taylor was in would do the premiere performance. And so she spent the next next year or so working through that piece and, and constructing it. And we talked a lot about how it would be put put together and uh, we premiered it in May of 2019. This idea, a hive of frightened bees, such an evocative image. Last year, you traveled to Nashville to be honored as a Country Music Association National Music Teacher of Excellence. Uh, I understand that was quite a thrill for you. Can you tell us about that night? Yeah, very similar to what the Grammys do. CMA does a lot of wonderful work for music education, jump-starting music programs in, in less fortunate schools and so forth. Uh, and they roll out the red carpet, I understand. They do, like yeah. You... So part of what they do is uh, recognize teachers. And so I went to this event in Nashville. I didn't quite know what to expect. And they opened the door and there it is. There's a red carpet and news stations are there taking videos and interviewing the, the teachers, as well as about 30 country stars that huh. uh, were like... there supporting the teachers. What was so crazy about that is they would come up to us asked to take our picture uh, with them, uh, you know, congratulating us, how much we inspire them. I understand Dirk Bentley came up to you. Yeah. Who has the music festival in Colorado. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's he, cool. He actually hosted that event and hmm. yeah, it was great. Are you a country music fan? I am not. <laughs> no, but that's okay. I, I, I don't devalue that as an art form. It's just not my not particular taste. Before we go, the Music Educator Grammy comes with a cash prize for Arvada West. If you win, uh, and again, you've been nominated before, uh, what would you use the money for? Well, for the school, we have, a, we have a scholarship fund set up that's for current students who are not financially able to pay for things like concert attire or go on trips with the choir. And I think I would would put that money toward that. Wow, very nice. Chris, nice uh, to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much.
Chris Maunu is choir director at Arvada West High School. He's one of 10 finalists for the Grammy's Music Educator Award. The winner will be announced later this week. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News.